0: We just got done with that. <laughs> then, like we were not even doing chit chat. We're just, no, oh, we're in, going this, straight into... This
1: episode we did, you guys, if this is your first episode you're listening to of our podcast...
0: Congratulations. Congratulations,
1: you won the lottery. We hit the jackpot. Because this is now, I mean, I said it during the show, but this is... If people are new to the podcast, tell them to come to this first.
0: Cause no, it, you said that after. Now did we're saying it. Afterwards? Oh, I did standing. say it afterwards. This is the
1: first episode. Good. Because if, yeah, so if you're like telling someone that they need to listen to our podcast, yes, please tell, tell them, them to listen episode. to this one first because it encapsulates so much of what we try to articulate, but we don't have the resource behind it, research behind what we say. And we say things off the cuff all the time. And like we always tell you, we are not experts in the majority of things that we talk about. And so we have to bring on people who can really tell you what's what. Dr. And-
0: Michelle Nario-Redmond is who we have. And she is a social psychologist. And she is in the study of disabilities and prejudices surrounding disabilities. It's couched in the term of ableism. And she just, I mean, she takes us on just Such a journey. You know, she lightly touches on ableism Mm -hmm. kind of a little later because I brought her back to it, but just so you guys kind of know what it is, you know, there's the ABCs of it. So, you know, the effect, the attitudes, you know, do people take pity on people with disabilities? You know, are they disgusted? You know, what is their behavior? Mm -hmm. You know, what are the discriminatory policies that are being put forth? And what is the, I think I wrote cognition, the stereotypes. Are they competent beings in our minds? Are they incompetent beings? And I mean, we just touched on a lot with her and we are just going to let you guys get into it. It's incredible. We're so grateful that she came on and we hope you enjoy it. Once again, we've done it. We have somebody that's I think a pretty big deal. Oh, absolutely. I mean, this is gonna be so great to
1: really put some perspective and some background to what we always say about changing people's perceptions about disability.
0: Michelle, thank you for being on. Please introduce yourself and, you know, give a little blurb about yourself. Sounds good,
2: I'm Michelle Nario Redmond. I'm very grateful for the invitation. And I am an academic, a social psychologist at Hiram College small liberal arts college in Ohio, and I just finished writing and publishing a book on ableism, which is what we'll be talking about. But just to give you just a quick blurb, the way I came into disability studies and stereotyping and prejudice research is that I'm a mom of a woman, now 23, she'll have a birthday here in just a few weeks oh, nice. so with, with a disability, with spina bifida, and I was able to raise her As a proud disabled woman, thanks to the people that came before me, all the mentors and, you know, reading that I did, I was able to sort of bring her into this world, this community of people that we don't hear about in schools, that have famous and presidential and other scholars and scientists who are role models, but that students never hear about. So I feel very fortunate that she was
0: my muse. Isn't it interesting how motherhood, I have 11 a month old, and so I'm very, I'm a baby mom in every sense of the word, not just having a baby, but just myself in this new identity, if you will. And did you ever see yourself before having a child getting in this arena? No. Right? I did not. Yeah. Go ahead. Much like other people that
2: were, that, you know, internalized stigma about disability and you just don't want to think about it for yourself, your family, or your kids. Right. And so, yeah, I was busy studying racism and sexism and mm. homophobia and didn't even dawn on me that there's a whole huge minority of people that live with disability for whom stereotypes and prejudice are an everyday occurrence.
0: Wow. But even with those studies, you know, those are marginalized people. So that is right. very interesting that, it, you know, it's not like you were just doing something completely opposite of that, yeah, right? Like yeah. you were that academic with that mind for curiosity. That's incredible. But you're, so your
1: research doesn't just, you really get to the root of the, I don't want to say science, but I guess science, but behind How did we get here? How did we get to the point where we have these biases and how people perceive disability, right? You've done a lot in that realm.
2: And I'll tell you, just to be clear, I have my own research that I'm happy to talk about where no one had been quantifying disability stereotypes about the global group, regardless of whether the impairment was blindness or deafness. And then I did research on disability identity, which I'd love to talk about too and the importance of claiming that membership, and most recently on disability simulations. But in terms of the origins of ableism, I was not doing research in that realm. I was just hoarding the science. Mm-hmm. I was teaching students, and I had a freshman class that I affectionately called Freak Gimp Crazy Crip <laughs> because in terms of disparagement, yeah. some of which we reclaimed. And I was just trying to figure out, in terms of my teaching, what do we know? from the social science literature on why people are fearful and curious at the same time and sometimes hostile and sometimes want to help when help has not been asked for. And so I was hoarding literally in my file folders Mm -hmm. and increasingly on my computer all of these studies. And I never really thought, you know, this would make a great book.
0: Oh, that's great. I think one of the things that attracted me, obviously, in the realm of law that we deal with, but more importantly, that background, like we would love to be social scientists as well, because we just see so many different people Mm -hmm. and how they're affected. and, And we try to be a voice for them, but really understanding our own feelings about the community. And one that, you know, maybe because when we were younger, a lot of the children were separated yeah, and it produces, which I thought that you pointed out very succinctly is fear. Right? So yeah. as a child, you're seeing children be separated. You fear the unknown. And you fear like, well, they must be, you know, I don't want to be like right. them. You know, right. I don't want to, you know, you I think don't know they're, what in they're like. Mm-hmm. I don't know who they are. Right. I don't know they're
1: how they're like me or how they're not yeah. like me because they're not in front of us. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That,
2: you know, one of the anecdotes I think has been discussed quite a bit is not only do kids, you know, come into this world perhaps not necessarily having many of the biases that are learned until they see, oh, why are those kids in a separate classroom, is this thing that happens when you're a parent and your child sees someone who's different and is curious and starts approaching or pointing, and the parent signals the child that this is not okay by yanking at their Mm -hmm. jacket and pulling them away, Mm -hmm. and that tells the child, oh, no, this is something to be afraid of. Mm -hmm. I mean, prior to that, they may not necessarily express anything but curiosity and you know interest in what's not familiar but i think we do all of these unintended things that give them these ideas that this is a separate class of citizen or, or
0: <laughs> human being right And the parent just simply thinking, oh, it's rude to point. And so I'm just going to immediately just yank my child, right? That's the innocuous kind of way that a parent may be thinking. But the ramifications of that, which nobody I'm sure thinks twice about, is alarming and great that you point out. Yeah. So your book really focuses, it goes like a step further
1: than talking about how like current literature is really just so narrow and you want to kind of demonstrate the significance of ableism and like where it came from. Can you talk a little bit about the origins and kind of give our listeners kind of a basis context of, of where this all came from?
2: Sure. And part of the problem is this literature is fragmented. You know, it's in political science and it's in psychoanalysis psychology and it's you know, in disability studies, and so finding it and pulling it all together was half of the challenge. But from what we know from much of the social science literature that's been focused on disability attitudes is that when you put some of these things either to the empirical test or collate from anthropology and sociology, you realize that there are several distinct uh, sources or origins that impact individual thoughts and feelings and behaviors, and one of those has to do with what some argue is an evolutionary basis for fear, that humans have these needs for safety and security and to feel good about themselves and to belong, but in evolutionary days of old, that they may have avoided that which was considered unfamiliar or strange, including those that may have signaled poor health because perhaps Mm. they had rashes on their faces or they were anomalous in terms of missing a limb. And so one of these interesting arguments is that part of our fear may be an evolutionary holdover to avoid things that signal disease or contamination and that people became very adept and vigilant or wary about those things that were considered dangerous, whether someone from another troop or group or people who may have signaled poor health. And that over years of evolutionary history, this false alarm that said, better to avoid and stay safe than to approach, Mm. became overgeneralized. And that people came into this world with this sense of needing to protect themselves by affiliating mostly with their in-groups and avoiding those that may have signaled contamination. But what's fascinating is that when people do try to examine this empirically, um, you know, we know that even if you have these predispositions, you still learn that you may be, you know, inaccurate. And so Mm. studies have shown people are fearful of of those with cancer. Once they hear they have the label cancer, even if it's not contagious, Mm. they don't want to touch their clothing or wear their clothing or swim in the same pool with people that are labeled mentally ill. Hmm. And clearly there are differences and some who are more germophobic or fearful than others. But as we come educated, we realize these are irrational fears. And interestingly, those who have friends and families with disabled members are not fearful, are hmm. not worried about contamination. And so this research is really just emerging as it applies to disability prejudice and ableism. So there's a lot we don't know. But there's one example, a source of potential prejudice that may be more biologically based. And then there's fears that many have written about for years associated with becoming disabled. And this one really fascinates me because disability is a group that everyone can join and many of us, if not all of us, will join at some point in the life cycle, mm-hmm. whether it's temporarily hmm. breaking an arm. Yeah you know, experiencing a traumatic brain injury, like a concussion that may dissipate, or whether it's becoming permanently disabled because most disability is acquired through spinal cord injury or through old age. And so this is a group, I think that even if it's at an unconscious, less conscious level, people recognize could befall them. And because of the history of misinformation and myths and stories that we tell children about the tragedy of disability, they don't want to go there. And Mm -hmm. so they sort of put it out of their minds and distance themselves from those that remind them of their human mortality or their vulnerability to being a human, being a body that breaks or bleeds or may become injured. And I think that underlies a lot of some of the manifestations and even hate crimes that we see escalating in the disability community among those that are particularly threatened by that possibility. Right. right. And then there's other I'll just mention one more the learned beliefs that come out of again the media and stories and Disney movies that uh. when we were growing up were more prevalent I think that's changing that have to do with you know who is human and who has a right to be in this world and You know, the things that we learn through stories and through TV shows and movies and ideologies like, you know, social Darwinism that I'm sure we can get into too about, you know, who's even
1: human. Right.
2: And I think we need to think about those distinctly because they may suggest different kinds of solutions.
1: Yeah. Well, I think we see a lot, especially like in the media and online and the way people express these biases and this prejudice really revolves around their lack of knowledge of disability, I think. A lot of people know, like, you know, if someone's in a wheelchair, they can't walk, right? That's easily known. But they don't know what it is that person can do, right? We know that children with intellectual disabilities may have a more difficult time with certain things, but that have other attributes that are so amazing, but we don't see those, right? We talk about a child with Down syndrome may have more difficulty learning to read, but the empathy that they have and their ability to not only show joy, but pull emotions from people is a gift that other people don't have. So I think there's that fear because we think about the negative and we don't really classify, we don't showcase the positive. Like a child with autism who could become amazing with the computer. So yeah, they may be nonverbal, but what they can do, like with disability, there's not just the things that they can't do, but there's so much that they can do, but we're not emphasizing that.
2: And that is so important, what you just said. I mean, when there's even a phrase, you know, just because someone can't speak doesn't mean they don't have anything to say. Right. And so when you just reminded me of how with all of the prenatal tests that are available now that allow parents to make informed decisions about the babies that they're carrying, what we don't let them know about and what I think there's so much work to be done is to provide genetic counselors and doctors and medical professionals information about the gifts, about the things, Mm -hmm. and the diversity of people with autism, with Down syndrome. And, you know, a test can only tell you, you know, the presence of of some conditions. It can't tell you about the presence of musicality or any number of other gifts, because so many disabled people are also gifted. Right. But I also wanted to go back briefly just to what you said about the kid in the wheelchair who we look at and we say, okay, well, clearly that's a visible piece of equipment that signals that they can't walk. But because we're such binary thinkers, we tend to say, oh my gosh, they can't walk. What are they doing standing up for a second? They mm-hmm. must be faking it right. and um. fail to realize that some people do use you know, a wheelchairs part time or maybe for long distances or pills, <laughs> but have other equipment. So one of the things I used to tell people about my own daughter is when they see her on the playground and she's not swinging on the swings, the first thing they think of is, well, that makes sense because she can't walk. She uses that wheelchair. Mm. But what they don't look at are the bark chips. Like maybe it's the bark chips Mm. on the playground that are preventing her from getting to the swings, which turns out in her case If you have a barrier-free playground and she could wheel over, she was able to swing. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we just don't take a look at the surrounding environment. We take a look at what's right in front of us. And then we sort of overgeneralize and make these dichotomous um, in perceptions. Mm-hmm. I loved what you said. Yeah, that's so true.
0: I think we're presented with a lot of information on a daily basis, and people like to streamline the process by putting labels onto things. So it's very easy for them to say, You're in a wheelchair, you can't walk, move on with my day. But then if you see that same person, they get up, you know, oh, you know, that's an alarm. They're faking it. I got to be aware of them, right? Yeah. And, you know, oftentimes, when you're around children, and we always say, you know, they're what they're learning in the sandbox, right, of how to play and how to share, and really, those biases are not there. And it's like, how do we tap into that? And I think just even with the term ableism, and actually, I realize we haven't given our listeners a definition or, or how you even came about to use the word. Can you talk about ableism a bit?
2: Sure, and it's a word that has only recently get been getting some traction. Some people refer to it as disablism. I mean, there's language is constantly evolving, but the way I like to think of ableism is pretty straightforward as somebody that studies prejudice. It's prejudice and discrimination against people considered to have some kind of disability. And so there's the ABCs of ableism, if you will. And A stands for you know, affect or emotionality, the attitudes, the feelings that we have, like pity, or even jealousy over accommodations, or perhaps disgust at someone with facial burns and other conditions. Or maybe then there's the B, the behaviors, the tugging at the clothing to pull the child away when they're curious, the discriminatory policies that keep some kids separate from others, the rolling up the windows in certain neighborhoods where you see people again, that you know, aren't like you and fear for your safety. And then there's the C, the cognitions, the beliefs that we have, the stereotypes that maybe only certain people can be sexual beings or competent beings or you know, interdependent beings. And so those three work together to create differential treatments. Just because someone is considered to have a disability in fact whether they personally identify as disabled or not it's just mm-hmm. overarching set of beliefs attitudes and behaviors that result in treatment that's different toward an entire
0: group
1: mm-hmm. i want to go back to something you said earlier because you just kind of brought it to my mind again you were saying like the perceptions that a person with a disability has of themselves and earlier you said something about like owning their disability and i was curious we go back and forth and we talk a lot about how we talk about people with disabilities and do we use the person first language like a child living with autism do we say a child with autism a child that has down syndrome obviously we know that a lot of times the concept of an autistic child or a Downs kid, those are not the appropriate ways, but what are your thoughts about the person first of they're living with Down syndrome or they have Down syndrome? Like, do you have any thoughts about, you know, just in your research of what people with disabilities sure. kind of their thoughts on that?
2: And I love that question because as I've, you know, language is constantly changing. So I'll, I'll give you sort of what I've heard a lot from members of the disability community and, and the disability rights community. but. Really, it comes down to you know asking the person their preference because so many people do have different preferences. And so, just like you know, do you need help? We don't know for sure. And instead of imposing it, we ask. Mm-hmm. And so, I want to caveat with my what I'm about to say with that that it's really important that if it's living with or experiencing—I use experiencing a lot—someone mm-hmm. experiencing a mental health condition. Mm-hmm. I don't even like to use illness because that pathologizes those with depression and schizophrenia and so forth. But at least from people that are working in this field, doing disability studies, doing activism, there's a new hashtag out, thanks to Lawrence Carter Long and others who are trying to remind people that disability isn't a bad word. Mm -hmm. And so the hashtag is say the word, disability Mm. say the word. And so many people do want to privilege the idea of disabled people. We are people that are proud of belonging to this community. And when you say disabled people, it sort of also foregrounds this notion that what are we disabled by? We're disabled by society in some cases, that we may not even be disabled in some cases where we're able to participate as others, regardless of our impairments. But, you know, when you're writing a book like this or, you know, you want to mix it up. And so sometimes even in my book, I'll say people with disabilities, that seems to be still common parlance. But Mm. others push back against that because they say that sometimes people with sort of reinstantiates or reaffirms this idea that disability is something like you put on. And it reminds Mm -hmm. people that it's similar to the impairment. It's equating disability as the same thing as being blind or having deafness or what have you when some people are striving to make that distinction. But I think the most important thing is that we aren't afraid to use the word and that we ask people what their preferences are. Mm-hmm. And and one other thing I'll say about language too is that I'm still learning in yeah. reading the literature. You know, there's a reason why we use special education and special needs mm-hmm. that comes out of some existing legislation that is forced instead of achieving and so forth to their peers so that they can qualify for accommodations. But one of the things that I've heard a lot mentioned is that when we continue to use the word special needs, we preclude, if you will, or occlude the notion that these are human needs and that these are civil rights. And Mm -hmm. so to what extent does continuing the use of the word special needs you know, sort of occlude or block people from being able to think of human needs for access and participation as civil rights. Right. And I find that fascinating, too.
0: You know, I think it just us having this conversation. I mean, it's always so difficult to just, you know, we want it to be black and white. Which one is it? What do we use? But I think, you know, and that's just to our human nature, right? Which is fascinating in and of itself. But us just, we always say this, we try to start the conversation. And I think that that's the most important thing. Because if people aren't even talking about how to talk about people, (laughs) then, you know, we get stuck. But just having this conversation, and we may never know what is the right way. But I think starting with asking the person, obviously, is always great. And then just being mindful of the way that we say things. We have people all the time that, you know, use the R word and, you know, in front of us. And then they kind of look at us and they go, oh, you know, sorry. Um, and, you know, at least they're acknowledging that, you know, it's not appropriate. But, you know, it's funny that they try to, you know, they're apologizing. Yeah, they go, to- I didn't mean yeah. it like that. And yeah. it's like,
1: well, yeah, sure, maybe not. But it continues to perpetuate the right. stereotype. And, you know, I was thinking about the fact that, you know, we always like when we think about like person first and, and about this area being such a civil right that like we get a lot of people who say like, oh, well, you know, why should we be spending so much money on? special education. Like why do they get money that like our children in general education don't? And it's, we try to reframe that conversation of that's not what it is. It's about giving equal access to all children and that it should just be education. Just like a left-handed learner is going to need, you know, it's better if they have a binder that opens from the other side, right? We're going to have something where we want to teach kids the way that they learn so that they learn best. And for You know children who are living with disabilities like they need to learn a different way too just like anyone else but i was thinking about the fact that i often have people in my family like my parents and grandparents and whatnot you know and we hear this all the time you have someone who's telling a story and they'll say and this black man Right. And it's like, why do we even need to say, talk about the color of his skin? Right. Does that have any relevance to the story? More often than not, it doesn't. And I think the same goes for disability is it's like, why are we classifying it? They're a person just right. like anyone else, and they have rights just like anyone else. We shouldn't be saying that, oh, well, we're going to talk about them differently just because they have a disability. I mean, sure, if we're saying, you know, we need to make sure that they're getting equal access, and so because of their disability or symptom of their disability you know we need to provide them with x y and z accommodation then that's relevant of course but you know if we're just having a story about a friend like we wouldn't necessarily say oh yeah my friend who has autism
2: yeah it's complicated though because i hear what you're saying and i definitely want to go back to the r word discussion too and how when we hear these things things have changed i mean look at the campaigns around the r word yeah to end word, and people are, Absolutely. even the American the Psychological, the, the American Psychological Association, and others have changed the ways they're putting information out. Um, I think that that's really important. Even though the word has taken on, you know, other meanings, like you know, I just meant it to be, you know, uncool. Mm-hmm. Well, right. And people are hurt by it, and this is how things get perpetuated. But then I also think about you know the power of words when your assumption is that the person that may have, I don't know, taken your place in line, or maybe you were in a car accident or something, and people will say, Well, this older adult you know hit me from behind. Uh, yeah, uh, uh. What people are assuming is the sort of white, heterosexual, male, neutral person. And so sometimes putting that qualifier on is necessary, if you will, even if it's not seemingly relevant to the conversation.
0: Mm.
2: Sometimes disability is not relevant to the conversation. Right. Right. But people will maybe make assumptions that are not inclusive of these diverse Mm. demographics. So for example, if you're trying to change attitudes and you have a student with a learning disability who has disclosed this, who's out, if you will, with their status and they're in a class where the disability doesn't matter. Maybe it's a math class and they're really great at math, mm-hmm. and so they don't really want to tell their instructor right. that they have a disability because they don't want the stereotypes and the mm-hmm. bias and mm-hmm. any accommodations for that matter. But then again, how is the perception of the instructor supposed to change mm-hmm. around learning disabled students if they don't find out that this particular student is so capable mm-hmm. in a particular mm-hmm. subject? and so? Making sure people know about group membership sometimes is necessary to disrupt their You know
0: what I mean? Right, but I think in a thoughtful way. But I think that's probably where Amanda may have been coming. When it's not in a thoughtful and it is meant to be, you know, harsh or discriminatory in a negative way, it's not helpful.
1: Right, well, when I think about like in the Down syndrome community, there's a lot of families that are really trying to change the perception and say, you're rocking that chromosome, right? We are celebrating it. We want to express that our child has Down syndrome because it is a gift that we love. And I agree. And I want so badly for everyone to agree with that. And I think where the kind of fine line sometimes is with the rest of world who has not had the benefit of experiencing interacting with a child or a person with Down Syndrome, they haven't experienced that yet. And so we want to showcase them. And what I worry sometimes is when we do classify and we see the disability first rather than the person first is that we have this perception in this country and all over the world, these prejudices that you're talking about. And it's kind of like, how do we Is it that we need to be showcasing the positives and not shy away from using the words? Is it that we need to categorize them? Like we say, special education or this type of education, being able to get this kind of education is a civil right. And that we say our area of law is a civil right. By saying that, that every human is equal and they should be treated equal. And I know that your book kind of goes into like, How do we fight these biases? So maybe this is a good time where you can kind of talk about what do we do? How do we approach this problem?
2: And as you guys are always saying, too, it depends, right? It depends on is the context an interpersonal one where the kids are playing and it's just not relevant. You know, they're playing in the sandbox and a parent may inadvertently come over and say, oh, let them win or let them have that toy because they're you know, as a kid with autism, where they can just somehow tell there's a difference. And, you know, that may not be relevant. In fact, if the kid is behaving, maybe they should be also held to account. But then if we're talking about political representation or, you know, other ways of confronting bias, you know, maybe it becomes relevant. Or disrupting perceptions, my example of the professor who has no idea, if the student themselves feels comfortable saying, hey, just so you know, I got an A in your class. I also experienced this condition that I just want you to know that we're quite diverse. There was a campaign that my students did called This Is What It Looks Like. And so instead of Mm -hmm. saying do we privilege the category or make it secondary to the person, this was more like lateral, like you saw a picture of a person. In fact, my daughter was even feeding one of these. And she uses a wheelchair. She experiences spina bifida, but she's also an education major. She likes to, you know, Watch videos and just had all, all of these things at the mm-hmm. same time. This is what you know depression looks like. This is what sort of you know more. You know what I mean by lateral. It just mm-hmm. sort of included a bunch of different characteristics and didn't privilege one or the other. But to speak to how we begin to think about changing attitudes, again, it depends. Are we talking about the personal level? Do we, are we talking about the intergroup level or the institutional level? One of the things I wanted to bring up was we're talking about the art and confronting, I'm really fascinated by the power of peer pressure Mm -hmm. and how when people say things, we're often at a loss for how to respond. Because number one, we don't want people to not like us. Sometimes we're simply unprepared with what we should say or what we would like to say in the moment. And they say something perhaps unintentionally hurtful, you know, they don't know any better or whatever. And so, what do we know from research that suggests that when people say something that's perhaps just a microaggression or Mm -hmm. just something that isn't intentional but just based on stereotypes, how do we speak up and what is most effective? And what we've learned is that when people do say things that are ableist or racist or whatever, just even following up with, what did you mean by that? Can you Uh,
0: mean
2: that? Because, you know, that's something, and then you can start a conversation because we certainly need to have these difficult dialogues. And we know from research, if we say nothing, it's actually not neutral. We make it more likely that this will be repeated or that people will think it's okay because no one has spoken up against, you know, the sexist attitude or, or the sexist statement. And so I'm really interested in the conditions that people are more likely to receive information that gets them to be more aware. So it turns out that when you're a member of a dominant group, let's say you're a man, and you are you hear someone say something sexist about a woman, in jest, maybe it's just a joke or whatever, mm-hmm. if you say something, they're much more likely to take it to heart. Mm-hmm. Right? right. Because you're not in the group, and you have nothing to gain, and you're a member of their group, so allies mm-hmm. have this huge role to play in being able to stand up and say, you know, that's Mm -hmm. not okay, or here's Mm -hmm. why, or tell me more about why you say that and Mm -hmm. why I think maybe it's not you. You can do trainings where people practice in role play Mm -hmm. kindly, not necessarily in any sort of aggressive manner, what people can do in a peer kind of peer-to-peer way to confront. Mm -hmm. But I also think it's important at the institutional level to push back and to say, you know, things like, you know, we haven't been doing captioning, and we really mm-hmm. need to think about right. being forefront of we have students here on this campus who may not be able to advocate for themselves. You know, we could talk about the lack of transition opportunities for students coming out of high school, but, you know, maybe we need to be advocating for students, with students, and with others with disabilities, mm-hmm. you know, so that people get what they need in educational and other settings, yeah. active need to make sure that their events are accessible and say who's at the table and who's not at the table and why not. And I mean, there's so many things that we've learned work, like just putting people into contact. There's a huge literature on just increasing familiarity because there's inclusion now. Right,
1: right, and, right. You no, know, I like the is- idea of kind of making it more of a conversation of like, Starting the conversation with, like, you know, why is it that you said that or what do you mean? Rather than just right off the bat telling someone that's not okay to say. Because I think that that allows, number one, the conversation to happen, which needs to happen. But I think someone is more likely to change their behavior if you have that conversation than if they're just told no.
0: Well, I also think there's, like, there's shame there. And that's why people apologize when they say it around a man or right? because they feel the shame, you know, and, right. and yeah. we haven't even had the reaction time. It's just right. like, you know, they feel shame and people, nobody likes to right. feel shame. So if but you're chastising stopped, yeah. someone and you're not trying to understand right. why they used right. it then it just stops it. Yeah, well, it's everything. getting
1: to the root of why it is I said it in the first place because, like, people who do that, act that way around us, they're feeling shame because they feel like they offended us, not because they actually feel like they shouldn't have said it in the first place sometimes. And so and then, the conversation I- to help them understand, I think, is necessary so that they're not just, like, I don't want people to not say it around me just because they know I don't like it. I want them to realize why it's wrong.
2: Right. And that, you know what, there's research that suggests that there is a place for shame, that people, there's a reason why people stigmatize to begin with, like, Mm -hmm. you're not representing our group, you're dressing in a funny way, or you're acting Mm -hmm. in a way that isn't, so I'm going to shame you, or I'm going to exclude you. And to the extent that people do more blatant things that are unacceptable shame can internally motivate people to change absolutely Mm -hmm. and so you know i don't want to go there immediately with someone that's you know doing something unintentional or just because then that can really put people off and then they're like well forget it i'm not even going to talk to this right anymore because i'm just going to make mistakes and we have to be willing to allow people to make mistakes and apologize and so forth but there is a place for making people for good guilt you know, mm-hmm. that we can all learn. I've learned. I make mistakes. I was at mm-hmm. theme park, a Disney park, I think it was, and a young woman with Down syndrome, you know, I've often wanted a, a special handshake to signal, hey, I'm an ally. I have a daughter with a disability that mm-hmm. I want right. people to recognize.
0: Yeah. But
2: we were in line for the ladies room and I said, oh, excuse me, honey, because I was trying to get through. And she said, I am a 35-year-old woman. Do not call me honey. And oh, like, Okay. Hey. Yeah, (laughs) you know, there you go. I mean, we can all learn and we can all do better. Absolutely. That is so, so true. So thank you for that.
1: (laughs) Well, we are so glad we were able to engage in this conversation with you. And I know we could go on forever and ever. And, you know, we can't wait for readers to take a look at your book. And are you doing like, are you going to have like a second book? Are you doing more research or compiling more research? Like what's the next step so people can kind of look out for?
2: Well, so the next step for me, I'm really interested in getting more involved in policy. So I was mm, just able excellent. to do a, a congressional briefing like a week or two ago, and I was I presented on the book, and it will be live captioned on YouTube. It was live Facebook, but we're waiting for it to come up on YouTube. I'll be sure to send you guys. Yes, that.
0: please. We'll share it with everyone. I'll be sure that you guys
2: get a copy of the book too. But I wanted I in preparing for that. I'm trying to keep up on all these policy issues. Yeah, And folks at the Center for American Progress are doing great work Mm. and trying to inform us, and so is Alice Wong and others that are behind the the Disability Visibility Project and Crip the Vote, hashtag Crip the Vote, because for the first time in years, people are actually bringing disability issues to the candidates that are running for president and they're starting talk about things. And that's Mm -hmm. huge. And so I'm happy to send resources, but I want to do so much more with respect to give, to leveraging and translating this work to those that need it the most, to parents and to your audience who, you know, I look through the podcasts that you guys have done. There's some really amazing topics and there's still so much demand for better transition services because we know that education matters. Yeah, Students with disabilities still don't graduate you know, at the rates, half the rate of their non-disabled peers, but those that do are so much more likely to be employed. And you guys had that podcast about, you know, college isn't for everyone. There's got to be options. There's got to be internships. There's got to be fair wages Mm -hmm. for students who may not want to pursue higher ed. But there are these programs that, you know, the National Centers for College Students with Disabilities that have been funded to help students with intellectual disabilities Mm -hmm get certifications and other credentials that help them live independently if that's a goal or you know engage in paid work and they work and they're doing this great work but the funding is running out so mm-hmm. you know I tried to meet with legislators about making sure that the NCCDs you know are funded at least through September so that they can you know regroup and hopefully locate more monies because there's so much need out there and so much potential of our citizenry to do good work, to yeah. be there for as role models for kids before us. There's opportunities for parents with kids with disabilities to show up at multicultural night and do demonstrations of disability culture and let kids know that they have many a role model that mm-hmm. come before them who are actors and who are activists and who are scholars living with a variety of conditions, comedians. And when we, my daughter and I, used to do these presentations, kids would just come up and be like, "Hey, I have that. <laughs> Robin Williams had ADHD, right, or right. other experiences." This, and it became this sort of disability cool dimension. Yeah. That mm-hmm. my daughter didn't want to participate when she was in second grade. She was like, "You go ahead and you do the talking." But when she realized there was so much interest, once people recognized there were these famous presidents with disabilities that no one's talking about right. in, the, in the history books, then she was like, you know what? You don't need to present anymore. I am to get up. <laughs> and she has been taken over. And yeah. that's what we want to see, what they deserve, which is right. full access yeah. to their citizen rights, their parenting rights, and others.
1: Yeah, I just read an article, an interview that Vice President Joe Biden uh, did where he talked about for the first time in an interview about his childhood struggle with stuttering and how Mm. that's impacting his campaign now because it's actually like somewhat coming back. And that's something that I'm sure the majority of Americans have no idea. You know, everyone who loves him, people who maybe don't like him – whatever the cause, but nobody knows about it. And it's taken him in his seventies to really be public about it. I mean, that is something that I think would be so great for people, for children especially, to see yes. and be able to relate to.
2: It's interesting. More people with speech impairments end up going on to be these rhetoricians or orators. Yeah. They right, didn't. right. I mean, not all of them, but if that's a passion, it, it sometimes becomes this yeah. thing that they really identify with in a positive way.
0: Right. Michelle, it's such incredible and fascinating work, but more, it's so important. And I think that it drives, you know, the policy changes, you know, man and I are helping one child at a time. And the purpose behind the podcast was to really try and get more of the population to start the conversation. And I think that your work, I just, I wish I had the time to research with you because I find it incredibly, incredibly, fascinating and mm-hmm. it's just it was such a privilege to speak with you yeah. thank you so much for coming on to our podcast please
1: keep us in the loop of the policy work that you're doing because we are so interested in promoting it as much as we can and anything that we can do to help please do and if our listeners want to get a hold of your book what's the best way for them to do that
2: if they go to ableismbook.com all one word ableism book There are links that they can read. In fact, for those that are busy, I've tried to make these extensive summaries of each chapter. They're not just a paragraph. They're like maybe a page of what each chapter has to say. And so that's a shorthand way to access the information. And at the back, there are recommendations that are also short summaries of conclusions. And then I want to plug, too, that at the end of each chapter, there are activist pages that my students with disabilities created that include hashtags to follow, resources to get involved, what to say, how to be an ally, and fun cartoons even that are out there. And so those are things that I really would love to see people access and use, and I'm happy to share more. So anyone that wants to talk or get involved can
0: contact me directly as well. Excellent. Thank you, Michelle. And we'll talk to you guys later. Bye.